My name is Shane. I'm one of the pastors here, and I get the privilege of preaching this morning. It's a blessing to be up here. Let me tell you guys a story from my past. I was in a high-stakes meeting, and I was under a lot of pressure to get this deal to happen. I wanted to make sure everything was on the up and up. And after hours of fierce and intense negotiations, I was ready to seal the deal. With the terms set, we were ready to make this thing official. So as any serious-minded individuals would do, we pinky swore. I was eight years old, and I just brokered the largest baseball card exchange in the history of my street. We had to end up with a pinky swear because one of the neighbors would have to go home and bring the rest of his cards the next day. As people, we make promises. Some are small, and some are big. Some are to ourselves. Any New Year's resolution makers here? Yeah? And some are to others. But we also tend to do something else, don't we? We tend to break promises. Sometimes small, sometimes very big. Sometimes to ourselves, and other times to others. As a pastor in this church, I know how some of us specifically have been hurt by broken promises. I know specific circumstances and the details. But I know this as a human being, and I think you could agree to the same. I know this this morning, without any doubt in my mind. Many of us have been hurt by broken promises. How can I say that with confidence? Because it's such a common experience in this broken world, isn't it? Some of us have been wounded by a close friend who's betrayed our trust. Some have walked through a spouse breaking their marriage covenant. Others have had a parent make a promise again and again and again, only to again and again and again not do it. And many, many of us have felt the pain of breaking promises ourselves whether it was towards others, towards God, or towards ourselves. This morning, we approach two towering chapters in Scripture. They're not usually someone's favorite verses. I don't ever hear anyone say, this is my life verse. I never walked into someone's living room and seen these words stitched on someone's pillow. But laying in the words of these chapters... In the pages of the book that you have in your hands lie a universe-shattering promise from God to Abram, to his people, and to us. Now in this series, we've encountered the word covenant before. In a few moments, I'll go into more details of what makes a covenant a covenant. But what I want us to acknowledge at this moment is that God is a covenant-making God. God is a covenant-making God. Chris, Chris just preached a few weeks ago on Noah, and, and after the flood, God made a covenant with Noah. Noah got off the flood, he sacrificed some animals, and then God made some specific promises to Noah. They even had a sign to go with the covenant. It was a visible word in the rainbow. 
God promised he would never destroy the world in the same way, to never curse the ground for man's sin again, and to maintain the seasons, day and night, seed time and harvest. And in today's passage, we will see another covenant made by God. Which means in the very early chapters of Genesis, we see that a part of who God is, Yahweh, the, the creator of everything, is that he is a covenant-making God. But it begs a very serious question from us this morning. One that I don't want you just to theorize about. I don't want you to uh, keep it at arm's length. I want you to wrestle with this question this morning because it's very important that we ask this question and that we all answer this question. And that is this, that, that with all the experiences that we have had of broken promises, whether from us or from others, of all those experiences, we must ask this morning, is the covenant-making God also the covenant-keeping God? Or maybe to put it in a more visceral and honest way, is God going to let us down? Are his words just words? Will he let us down like so many others have done before? Is he as fickle as we are? Often, I think if we were honest, maybe not giving the right answer, but if we were honest with ourselves of how we view God, I think many of us would have to admit we have a dour and frankly graceless view of God as he's revealed in the Old Testament. And I hope this morning, by the preaching of his word and by the Holy Spirit who is with us, that God would obliterate that view in our hearts. Now this morning, our passage is too large to read in one sitting, and I hate that. <laughs> As Chris did two weeks ago when he encouraged you to read uh, the passages he was preaching on, I'm going to have to do the same. I want to actually encourage you to do it tonight. Maybe, maybe after dinner with your whole family gathered, would you read these words? Or maybe in bed tonight, before you turn on the TV, would you grab your Bible and read these words? We're going to be looking at Genesis chapters 15 and 17, and I'll be moving through it. But I want you to read those words and think about them. But before we dive in, I must answer a question, right? God is a covenant-making uh, God. We're asking if he's a covenant-keeping God. Uh, what's the natural question? What's a covenant? So, I looked and looked and looked and I found what I think the best definition I could find on a covenant that was helpful to me was from Old Palmer Robinson's book, The Christ of the Covenants. And it reads like this. A covenant is a bond in blood. It involves commitments with life and death consequences. At the point of the covenantal inauguration, the parties of a covenant are committed to one another by a formalizing process of bloodshedding. This bloodshedding represents the intensity of the covenant. By the covenant, they are bound for life and death. Covenants are bloody affairs. Aaron, Aaron said last week, he, he, he alluded to it several times, that, that what happened to Abraham, what, what God did with him was more than just a pinky swear. 
All right? It was greater than just a promise. God entered into a covenant with Abram. And their life and death situations and their bloody affairs and the covenants of the Bible are divine covenants made by a sovereign God to people. That is what we're talking about today. The covenant to Abram is presented to us as readers in three parts. The covenant in part is introduced in Genesis 12. It is formalized or inaugurated in Genesis 15, and it is marked by a seal in Genesis 17. So let's go back and look at chapter 12 real quick. Verse 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is promises of blessing to Abram that are part of God's covenant to him. This isn't the entirety of God's promises to Abram. We see over the next several chapters, God continually making promises to Abram. But, but this is a bulk of the promises that God has made to Abram. And since God made these promises in chapter 12, Abram has seen in the subsequent chapters God blessing him materially and blessing him with security and safety. But Abram is wrestling with something by the time he gets to chapter 15. We find Abram fearful. God tells Abram, fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. So what? is Abram fearful of? Well, I think we find it in the next verses in his own words. He says, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Elazir of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. What's going on here? Well, God has made many promises to Abram, but, but one of them is that his descendants would be a great nation. And Abram doesn't have a child. As a matter of fact, in chapter 13, God told Abram his descendants would be as numerous as dust on earth, a.k.a. a lot of descendants, right? And here's the problem for Abram. In chapter 15, where we are today, Abram is somewhere between the age of 75 and 85. Abram, Abram's wife is old like him, and, and he's looking around, and, and God, you've made these promises to me. And I've seen you answer some of them in part. But, but how? How are you going to do this part of it? And it's not just that he's leaning into faith and he's asking the Lord because Abram is afraid. He's fearful here. He's questioning God. God, how are you going to make this happen? And what do we see from God when Abram is despairing regarding the promises that God has made to him? What do we see? I think if we were honest this morning, I think if we gave a true answer, not the right answer, what we know because we know the story or read the next verses right now, we might think God would say something like, who do you think you are? How, 
How dare you question me? Do you know who I am? I said I would do it. Isn't that enough? Church, I wonder if sometimes our experiences with other people or maybe even our experiences of what has come out of our own mouth paint a wrong picture of who God is. Is that what God does? No. Because God is far more gentle and gracious than we think. God is far far more gracious and gentle than we think. He takes Abram out to a field. Abram, come here. He takes him outside. It's nighttime. He says, hey, Abram, look up at the stars. I want you to count them. Can you count them? If you could count those stars, you would know how many descendants I'm going to give you because your descendants are going to be as numerous as that. Now, I just want to make it abundantly clear. This is no Castleberry, Florida, light-polluted sky at night, okay? If so, Abram would have looked up and said, one, two, two descendants? No. No, this is innumerable stars. This is the galaxies swept before him. This is the vista of the heavens opened up before him. He sees the stars in the night sky. And God says, your descendants will be the same. Think about that. God has already promised this to Abram, and Abram questions it, and God's reaction is to assure him by remaking the promise in a new way. How gentle is that? What you think about that? Abram is doubting. He's already been promised this. And God says, come here, I want to I promise it to you again. Sometimes I need assurance. I wonder if you do too. And the way that God assures Abram, it's such a wonderful gift, isn't it? It's not like, hey, I, I, I'm going to do it, okay? It's, it's come look at these stars. That means that every night of his life, any time Abram wondered, any time that he questioned again, he could go outside at nighttime and look up and see the stars again. He could remember, God said that, didn't he? And the very stars in the night sky are a constant reminder. Yes, he did. He promised. After God restated his promise to Abram, Abram believed. And God credited it to him as righteousness. I mean, we could preach sermon after sermon after sermon on just those words right there. And I think that sermons should be preached on those words over and over again. But, but Aaron focused on Abram's faith last week. And, and this week, I'm on a mission to answer this question right? Like, I'm focused on this question. Is the covenant-making God the covenant-keeping God? Will God let us down? And I don't want anyone to leave here this morning walking away not knowing that answer. So I will just note this about those beautiful words. It was counted to him as righteousness. I don't want your theological answer. I want your honest answer. Is this the way you view your salvation? When you look at this passage, is that how you see it? Abram has questioned God. 
God has graciously restated his promise to him. Now, after graciously restating it, Abram believes. And God counts that to him as righteousness. He has saving faith. That's it. There isn't obedience and then promises. It was promises, faith, salvation. It's the same thing that happens later in the book of Exodus. God calls the Egyptians out of Egypt. They are in bondage. They are in slavery. They are slaves to a nation. And God goes in and he calls them out and he rescues them. He saves them. And then he gives them a law. God didn't do this. He didn't go to, uh, to Moses and say, here's the law. I want you to go and take it back to the enslaved Israelites. And then I'm going to watch and I'm going to see if they're kind of the obedient type or not. God didn't look at the enslaved Israelites and say, if they clean themselves up, if they get good enough, if they try really, really hard, then maybe I'll save them. God said, I'm saving my people who I put grace on. And he called them out of slavery. God is more gracious than we tend to believe. Our hearts constantly war against this, but it's true. God is more gracious than we tend to believe. And at this point in the sermon, I think I want to let the cat out of the bag. I was preparing this message, and I had two people in mind. Now, if you don't hear yourself in this, don't exclude yourself from hearing the sermon. All right? I just mean when I'm, when I'm studying and I'm praying, I, I could just see two people. One was an unbeliever, and one was a believer. And they had this in common. They both thought far too little of God's grace. Whether you think you need to get your life together and clean up your act before you can come to God, or whether you've been saved by grace, but, but now you have fallen into sin and, and you just think, man, I just, God did his part in the beginning, but now it's my time. I need to start earning my weight around here. What if he stops loving me? Or maybe your theology is too good to think that God's going to stop loving you. So maybe you just say, maybe God will stop enjoying and liking me. Maybe he's just putting up with me out of his divine love. It's the same temptation. It's I need to earn his love. Can I tell you a scandal? It's so scandalous that our law-abiding, love-earning hearts cannot fathom it on their own. God wants you. That's it. God wants you. Not a better version of you, not a you after you fix yourself up. God wants you right now. You hear my voice? You're sitting in your chair. God wants you. You're a mess. I don't mean it self-righteously. I know I'm a mess too. Yes, God calls us to obedience, but, but get this right. It's an obedience that we walk in because we are saved, not because it makes us saved. Right? It's an obedience we walk in because we are loved, not because we want to be loved. It's an obedience we walk in because we're free. You have doubts right now. How can I know if God would really take me 
all of my failures and sin. How can I know that, that he's not just putting up with me? How can I know that he actually really loves me? Or you're wondering, is God going to let me down? Look what happens next to Abram. God, God reminds Abram what he's done by bringing him out of Ur of the Chaldeans to this land to possess it. And Abram asked the Lord this, O oh Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? What? How can, how can Abram believe in one moment at 75 to 85 years old that, that God is going to give him descendants? And, and then in the very next, when God says, I'm going to give you this land, he says, how am I to know that? Now, now, is Abram doubting God? I honestly don't know because I can't get into Abram's head here. I don't know, but, but I know this right now. God, he is so gracious and gentle with his people. Because God's reaction to Abram asking that question is, and I, I really, I thought about this every time I thought of this part of the sermon this week. All right? I don't think this is an exaggeration in any way. God's reaction to Abram's question of this is one of the most significant and important moments in all of creation. What we are about to read is one of the most important moments in the history of the world. God tells Abram to go get some animals together. He gives him quite a shopping list. A cow, a goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. Now we don't have in the narrative God explaining to Abram what to do next, so I think we can assume that he understood what was happening. It was a practice it was a practice at this time when making an oath with others to perform the ceremony. That means Abram knew that he was to cut the mammals apart. Not the birds, just the mammals. I want you to imagine how difficult that is. Abram walking up with a cow, got to kill the cow, got to cut the cow in half, and he's got to drag a cow body. <laughs> and he does this over and over again, and it's bloody. It's a bloody affair. He's probably getting covered in the blood himself, and there's blood making almost like a red carpet down the center of these separated animals, just smeared all over the grass. Abram knew in that moment that Yahweh was going to make a covenant with him. I wonder if Abram was thinking, as he was trying to track down a pigeon, what have I gotten myself into? You know, he's out there, coo, 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 looking for a pigeon. You know, he's trying to find one, and, and he's thinking, I got I to gotta enter into a covenant, a life or death consequences, a blood bond with the God of the universe. That's what he's asking me to do. See, Abram knew that he and the other party, which would be Yahweh, would to walk down the center between these animals as they made a covenant together. And what they're saying as they do that is that if I'm to break this covenant, if I'm to break covenant with you, let what happened to these animals happen to me. In the Old Testament, the phrase to make a covenant is literally to cut a covenant. 
This was a blood bond. And just as it was getting dark, as the hour approached for this covenant to be made, maybe Abram's stomach's starting to get a little sick, a wonderful thing takes place. A deep sleep fell on Abram. Now, I don't know how this worked. Apparently, he, he's unable to get up and participate in the ceremony, but he's able to witness what happens. So Abram is laying there, and he is alert or aware of what is happening. And God speaks to Abram, telling him the future, and he makes very specific promises to him. And then God passes between the animals. Represented as a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, Yahweh passes between the animals. Yahweh is using similar imagery to present himself to the Israelites uh, in Exodus when he is a pillar of smoke and a pillar of fire. And God passes through and God cuts a covenant with Abram where God is the only one responsible. What does that mean? God is saying to Abram that that if any side of this agreement, any side of this covenant is broken, I will pay the price. As Abram saw the torch and the pot pass between those torn apart animals, the covenant making God was saying to Abram and his future descendants, I will not let you down. Even though you will fail, I will not. Can you imagine if Abram was able to walk between those animals? What hope would he have had? What hope would the Israelites had? What hope would the descendants of Abraham's promise have? None. There would be no hope if this covenant relied on men. Yahweh is the only one responsible. We get to chapter 17 through Abram's failure in chapter 16. He tries to have the promised child that God said he would give him through another woman other than his wife. And what do we find? You find that kind of action. And what do we find in chapter 17? Do we find God rejecting Abram? Oh, see, God made a covenant to Abram and he's going to keep it. But here's where we find the real covenant promise. See, God has promised to Abram all sorts of wonderful benefits right? I, I said them in 12. They've been in the co- consequent chapters. There's land. He's going to be a great nation. He's going to have influence. He'll be a blessing to the nations. And he adds in chapter 17 that Abram's descendants will be kings, which makes Abram and, and Sarai royalty. But God ends a long list of promises with the true treasure. He simply says this at the end of verse 8 regarding the offspring of Abraham. He says this, and I will be their God. That right there is the covenant. Like, look at that. All the other benefits are wonderful. This right here is the most important thing. God saying, I will be their God. Allow that to stun you for a second. What's the heart of God in the covenant of Abram? It is this, relationship. A promised eternal, everlasting relationship. And it's through grace and relationship that God transforms us 
It's here in chapter 17, verse 1, that we first see God call himself El Shaddai. It's commonly translated in English as God Almighty, but the original meaning isn't entirely clear. It appears to, in this context, mean something like, I am enough. Why the new name? It seems at moments where our understanding is small, God is gracious to disclose more of himself. He's not naming a new part of his character. He's not coming up with some new part of his character. He's revealing more of his character. You know, I just thought the simplest way this clicks in my head is, is how many of us know because the Bible tells us and others tell us that God is a comforter? How many of us know that God is a comforter because he comforted us in suffering? God discloses himself to his people. He makes himself known. And when he's making this covenant, he's saying, I will be their God. He says, I am enough. It, it, his very name is a reminder that he's not just the covenant-making God, but the covenant-keeping God. Everyone else gets a new name too. Abram, which meant exalted father, is now Abraham, which means father of many nations. Sarai, which meant my princess, is now Sarah, which means princess. Why? Relationship with God gives us new identities. These, these names were affirming of the promises that God was making, right? He's, he's saying, hey, here's a name that, that affirms what I promised you, but it's also far more than that. It's not just affirming the promises that he has made, but at the same time, it's a reality of what God has declared. See, Abraham would not see the many nations, but nonetheless, he is the father of many nations. Fact. God said it, so it's so. Sarai was no longer someone's princess, but she was now a princess. So she may not see the courts of David, the throne room, or the palace, but she was nonetheless royalty. You know, I'm jumping in front of my notes, but do we have a hard time believing what God has called us? Are there things that he's said about us and his people that we have a hard time believing? Clean. Righteous. Precious. Loved. My people my inheritance, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Or is the voice of our flesh, this world, and our enemy drowning out what God has declared over us? Is the shouts of shame louder than God's declaration of precious and clean? Maybe it's at war in your heart right now in this moment. Can I really believe what God has said? We find this chapter, the long-awaited announcement. Abraham and Sarah will have a child in just a year's time. His name would be Isaac. God will not let Abraham and Sarah down. God gives a sign to seal this covenant, which is circumcision. 
I think I, think I remember Chris, when he was going through the Hebrew series, he had to, to talk about circumcision for like several chapters. So I think Chris has said enough about circumcision. We all remember the slides. No, there were no slides. Calm down. This is your first time here. There was no slides. But it's important that we acknowledge this. The sign of circumcision did not save Abraham. He was already counted righteous for his faith. But the sign of circumcision was a permanent sign in the body of the covenant God cut. It was a mark of people who belonged in relationship to him. And this matters, and we'll come back to it in just a moment. I want to return to the question at hand. How can we know that God will not let us down this morning? How can we know that? We have seen that God is more gracious and gentler than we tend to believe. We have seen that God has made a bond in blood and made himself solely responsible. And we saw that the heart of God's covenant is relationship. This relationship transforms and it affirms and assures us. But we can be left saying that God might have kept his covenant to Abraham. But what does that mean for me? What, what is this passage thousands of years ago that's, that's written about? It, what, what does that have to do with me right now? What I'm going through, my trials, my circumstances, my faith, what does it have to do with that? When God walked through those animals, when God passed between those animals over the blood that is streaked all over the grass, God saw you. We are spiritual descendants of the promise of Abraham. Galatians chapter 3 verse 7 through 9 says this, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, that is uh, those who are not uh, Jewish, but that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Did, did you catch that? God preached the gospel to Abraham when he said, in you shall all the nations be blessed. How could that be? Right? We know the gospel. It's Jesus. He came. He died for my sins. How could he be preaching the gospel in that one sentence? Because the means of which Abraham and his descendants would bless all the nations of the world were through Christ, the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Which means when God made his covenant with Abraham, when he had you in mind, when God made a covenant to be in relationship with Abraham, he, his descendants, he was thinking of us this morning. And he knew then thousands of years ago what it would cost to have you. He knew exactly what he would have to do to love you and forgive you and make you clean enter into relationship with you. See, it was the covenant-making God who is the covenant-keeping God. Now, I want you to get this confused. It was the covenant-keeping God who sent his son to earth 
and it was the covenant-keeping God who came to earth. It's, it's Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit are three, but they are one. This is not Jesus being the covenant fulfiller and, 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 and the Father being the maker. No, no. They are the covenant-keeping God. It was the covenant-keeping God who came to earth. It was the covenant-keeping God who walked with a band of misfit disciples. It was the covenant-keeping God who touched lepers, healed the sick, brought back to life a little girl, and forgave the sins of prostitutes and tax collectors. It was the covenant-keeping God who at the right time set his face to Jerusalem, and like a lamb he went to slaughter. It was the covenant-keeping God who on the night that he was betrayed took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And it was the covenant-keeping God who took the cup and said, drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of my covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Did you hear that? Animals are broken in two. Their blood is all over the place. And here's Jesus giving us the Lord's Supper we take in church. He says, my body is broken for you. My blood is poured out for you. See, Jesus' blood had two covenantal purposes. When, when he walked through those animals while Abraham watched on the ground those many, many years ago, he knew then that he would tear his body and pour out his blood to pay for the, the curses of the covenant. The breaking, our breaking of all the covenants. And at the same time, his blood would be poured out to mark a new covenant. It was the covenant-keeping God who went to the garden and sweat blood as he looked at the wrath that we deserve. And it was the covenant-keeping God who willingly went with his accusers. And it was the covenant-keeping God who was whipped, tortured, mocked, and abused. And that next day, on that wooden cross outside of Jerusalem, Jesus cut a new covenant. Why? Because he was coming after you. God had planned from Genesis that he would be on a rescue mission to come after you. Not someone else. You, he knows his people. So will God keep his promises? Will God keep his promises to his people? Look at that cross where God hung and died. And you tell me. Let me say it clearly for all of us. God will not let us down. He will not let his people down. How do you receive this scandalous gift of forgiveness, mercy, grace, and relationship? Accept it. That's it. You receive it. It's a gift. God loves you and he wants you. I said we would come back to circumcision. 
You remember how God gave the rainbow when he made a covenant with Noah? It was a visible expression of his promise. You remember how taking Abram out to the uh, sky to look at the stars at night, a visible reminder. You remember the name changing in chapter 17. It was declaring, this is good as done. And the circumcision, it's a reminder in the body of God's people that they were his people and he was their God. The new covenant that Christ has made in his blood comes with a visible word to the church too. It's baptism. I told Chris a week ago as I was preparing this sermon, as I was looking at this, I just said, Chris, like, I long so much to see baptisms. And, and I just, I have faith that God would do that. And so I asked Chris, would you just start praying for that? And so we filled up the baptistry this morning. Now, am I going to be embarrassed if no one's baptized? No. I'm not embarrassed. I, 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 my faith, my, my longing, and my hope is not trying to predict the future. It's longing for something. Can I tell you why I long so much to see baptisms today? Let me tell you why. Because to be baptized is to say, I'm in a relationship with God. It's a person receiving the good news of Jesus, being blessed through Abraham. It's someone receiving the love of the covenant-keeping God. And it's public. It's for the church. So, so just as Abram could look at the sky and remember the covenant God made to him, Noah could see a rainbow and remember that covenant, and the Israelites carried it in their own body a reminder. We as a church, when we see someone baptized, they go under the water. They go under saying, I am dead with Christ. And when they rise out of that water, they're saying, I'm now alive in Jesus in new life. I had an old identity, but relationship with Jesus is giving me a new identity today. And as the church, when we watch that, like Abram outside looking at the stars, we can look at a baptism and we can rejoice with joy, inexpressible. And we can say, yes, God will do it. Yes, he will. You are dead, you're alive. He will do it. Oh, it's, it's my favorite thing to see. Because my hard heart, my, my weak faith sometimes doesn't believe that God's going to do it for me. And when I see it, it strengthens my faith. And I rise up with my brothers and sisters and we behold together the covenant-keeping God. As the band comes back up here to lead us in worship, I'm going to take the unusual step of calling for ministry immediately instead of waiting into a song. If the ministry teams and the pastors would just come forward now, I want to appeal to you all this morning everyone here. I prayed that God would give new faith today, and I prayed that he would strengthen faith today. So I'm appealing to everyone this morning. If you're not in Christ right now, can I plead with you, my friend? With all my heart, don't resist him any longer. He loves you and he wants you and he died for you and if you will accept it 
he will never, ever let you down. If the Lord's tugging at your heart, let's invite you to come forward and, and be prayed with. Talk to someone about it. And if you want to accept his love, then, then we want to baptize you. You know, this morning, if, if you're just sure that you want to be baptized, you're, you're a Christian who just hasn't been baptized before, Chris will be right over there. You go talk to him. To my brothers and sisters in Christ, I feel this weight to make this so clear. God knew the mess he was getting in when he saved you. (laughs) He knew exactly what he was getting into. He knew you'd fail to obey time and time again. He knew that you would wander. He didn't die for a perfect you. The perfect one died for you. He loves you. He wants you. He wants relationship with you. And he wants it right now. And in that relationship, that's where you'll be transformed. Don't keep him at a distance and say, I got to clean my act up first. I really got to get this under control. No, run to him. That's where life is found. If you, just this morning, you're just, your faith feels small this morning. It's been weak. Something has touched your faith and, and made you question, is God going to let us down? Or, or maybe he didn't really mean everything he said. Maybe he's going to lighten it one day and say, yeah, I know I promised that, but, but I, it just didn't happen. It wasn't in the cards. If your faith feels weak or broken this morning, can I just invite you forward? This is not some special group up here. This is your brothers and sisters. They just want to encourage you and assure you and pray with you. Because my faith and their faith is small times too. And we just need to breathe life into one another. I'm just going to pray. I'm just going to pray. And, and if you're sitting in your chair right now, forgot to just give this very practical detail, and you're like, well, I, I kind of want to get baptized, but what what I do? Uh, we have extra clothes. We have towels. We'll take care of it. But I just want to pray right now. Lord, you know my prayers from this week. God, would you breathe life into your church this morning? Would you give us such a gift of faith this morning? As we sing worship, as we pray, as we put our hands on the shoulders of brothers and sisters next to us, as uh, Lord, if it is your will, if someone gets baptized this morning, as we long to participate in these things, God, would you just do this? Would, would you touch our hearts? Would you obliterate any hardness, any doubt that we have? Would we look to the cross of Jesus Christ and see where you literally died to keep your promises to us, to be with us, and to love us this morning? 
And would we have such great faith this morning, not because of anything in ourselves, but because of you, the object of our faith. Holy Spirit, come and do what only you can do. We pray this in your blessed name, Jesus Christ. Amen.